You're listening to Lab Notes, your weekly guide to science and innovation. Hello, I am Marek Inhat-Ponhaus. And I'm Leo Stevens. Welcome to The Brief, where we cover two concepts from science and business. Hey Mark, what have you got for us today? Hey Leo, today I want to talk about open access. This term is defined as a set of principles and a range of practices through which research outputs are distributed online and most important, free of cost to the consumer. And let me explain that a little further. Traditionally, publication of research works a little bit like this. Governments fund universities to carry out research. University researchers carry out the research. Then the researchers submit their papers to journals for publication. The review process is a volunteer activity which is carried out by other academics. And once a paper is accepted, the researchers then sign their copyright over to the publisher for free. In turn, the universities then have to pay for a subscription to read the research in the papers they paid for in the first place. Now, I call this the publication paradox. But governments and universities all around the world have been demanding change. And open access is a way towards this. In the case of open access, the researchers retain their copyright for a fee. And this way, their research is freely available to everyone and not locked away behind a subscription of a publisher. And there are several models available for publishing under open access. The most popular are gold, articles are free to read, and the author pays the cost of the publication. Green, which is the institution pays, but a near final version of the manuscript is made freely available to read in a university database. And then there are some instances of the diamond or platinum model where articles are free to read, but neither the author's or the institutions have to pay. And this is a brief overview of open access. So I guess it sounds like from your initial introduction that there's a bit of a contention among academics about how the old system was working, having to pay for access for the research. Do you think that stifled scientific productivity? No, absolutely not. What has happened is this model where publishing houses can earn a lot of money because they have to pay for very little of the work that is involved has led in recent years to an explosion in journals. People are catching on on how to make money out of academics who are funded by governments and universities and most of the process, the work, the writing, the reviewing is done on a volunteer basis. So a proliferation of scientific articles into journals and a proliferation of the number of journals that are actually around. Yes, not necessarily higher quality, just more opportunities for people to publish. Some journals are called predatory journals. That might be a topic for a completely separate episode. Right, but they're trying to game the system and bring in as many publications as they can, regardless of quality. Yes, their main focus of publishing houses, in my understanding, of course, is they are businesses and their main purpose of a business is to make money. Fair enough. Um, And in terms of open access, was there a leader in this? I know PLOS One was an early public library of science. Yeah, PLOS One is is one of the 
very first ones. I'm not aware of any others, but it's sort of really started to come about in actually the, the first instances, apart from PLOS One, which is a fully open access journal, which charges a high fee. It's something like 2200 US dollars to retain your copyright. There are also hybrid journals. Most journals now will allow you to either sign over your copyright for free to the publisher, or you can retain your copyright for a fee. And when you say retain your copyright, does that mean it literally becomes yours in universities, or is it now a public domain item so that nobody owns the copyright? It, it depends a little bit on how it's done. Some journals have that it's a creative common license. That's essentially what it becomes. So you can freely share it as long as you credit to the original source. Which is essentially how scientists have cited one another since the dawn of time. Except that, as I said in my introduction, I can write a paper, but then if I sign my copyright over and the university doesn't have a subscription to the journal, I can't even read my own work and I'm not even allowed to share it. Right, well, <laughs> it seems like open access is a, is a good direction for the Absolutely, it's the way forward. So, speaking of pivoting, I wanted to talk about pivoting. Pivoting, it's a, it's a term that's used to describe uh, making very significant changes to a business's strategy. This might mean a substantial redesign of a core product, perhaps refocusing on a different type of customer, or operating the business with a completely new financial model. For large businesses, pivoting is almost impossible. McDonald's is not about to decide that its staff uniforms are so popular that it's going to reinvent itself as a fashion brand rather than a food service business. There's just too much that's gone into creating this food service model for that to ever be viable. But for startups, pivoting is both more common and more financially viable. In many ways, young companies are constantly pivoting. They iteratively adapt their business models as they speak with customers, develop their products, and learn about their markets. But the term pivoting is usually reserved for more dramatic changes than that, when it has become really clear that the old business model that was being pursued is just not working at all, and a really drastic change is needed. There are some famous examples of successful pivots among startups. Instagram was initially a check-in app called Bourbon, and Twitter was once a podcasting service. So... It is possible for founder teams to change their direction successfully, but it's also a fraught process. It demands a lot of patience, trust, and understanding between the founders, investors, and employees, all of whom are likely to suffer some kind of short-term losses as the business reorganizes itself. Sometimes it might be better just to accept that the costs have been sunk and wind up a business before starting a completely fresh one. Anyway, that's the, the concept of pivoting. Who decides when to pivot? The founders are probably where the buck stops with that. They are the, the kind of chief executives of the business and are the ones who are going to know when the old model doesn't work and a new one is needed. But you cannot go through a pivot without the support of investors, really. You are going to need more funding in order to make this new strategy work. So you're going to need new investors to come on board or you're going to need follow-on funding from the old investors. And either way, you have to be able to work with them and convince them that this new strategy is going to work and explain why the old one that you previously sold them on hasn't. And pivoting is a complete change for the company rather than diversifying because there are quite a lot of large companies such as Apple, Google and Amazon that have changed, right? So Apple 
made computers, but is now also a streaming service. Yeah, launching new and additional product lines would not be called pivoting in this context. It really is about abandoning a business model as much as it is about finding a new one. So Amazon, you know, it started off as just a bookstore and now it sells, you know, everything under the sun. But that's not really a pivot because it's just been building on that portfolio over time. What what about Google as a search engine that now does self-driving cars? Still, like, because the company still does search and the search model is continuing to work, you wouldn't have said that they pivoted away from that. So uh, the abandonment of the initial plan is as important as the creation of new ones when you're saying that business is pivoting. In some ways, it's, it's almost a euphemism. It's a euphemism for saying that we stuffed up, that the old model yeah. was wrong and we need a new one. And as I kind of alluded to at the end of that, sometimes it's a bit of a, a face-saving exercise for the founders and the investors to keep the same company name, to keep the same staff and say that the business succeeded in a new market rather than closing one business and starting a new one. It may be that there's very little financial benefit to keeping the old business name, the old equipment around, but if you if you don't have to wind up a business, it looks better. So there's pluses and minuses to it. Certainly, if you have a business that's been through a pivot, it can be harder to attract follow-on rounds of funding because people will look at the cap table, people will look at the business history and go, well, you, you know, you've, you've had two years and nothing's happened or you've got these debts on your books that are very scary to new investors. So that's something that anyone who's considering a pivot really needs to consider how this pivoted business is going to look to the next round of investors. And it may be better to just cut your losses and start fresh. So a university could never pivot? Well, I mean, I guess... Our local one, the University of Wollongong, used to be a technical college and now is a university. You might say they're serving a, a very different market with that, that you can. So say if a TAFE reorganised itself into a university, that might be That's you know, pivot, enough to yeah. be called a pivot. And that has happened a lot of times around the world where institutes of technology have become universities. But I think we're running out of time, so we've got to wrap this up. Thanks for tuning in. See you next week.